VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You can't row a boat in an atmospheric river, but it is a powerful force of nature that transports massive volumes of water vapor. The director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at Scripps Institute for Oceanography is Dr. Marty Ralph, who is a pioneer in the study of atmospheric rivers affecting the Western U.S. and has been leading the development of a category scale like the Hurricane Saffir Simpson scale to classify the strength of an atmospheric river. He's here today to talk about atmospheric rivers, the scale, and why it's important for forecasting and communication. Uh, Dr. Ralph, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Good to see you. Well, it's it's Weather Geeks, and you know we have this tradition of the first question out of the gate being, how'd you become a weather geek if you were indeed one? Great question. I'm from uh, suburban Detroit originally, and uh, as a 12-year-old, moved to southern Arizona where I saw the monsoon and you know, lived on top of a hill. And in Michigan, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees, but in uh, Southern Arizona, we lived on a hill. I could see storms coming 50 miles away. It was spectacular. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I've, I've known, known you for some time and followed your career. Let me introduce you to the Weather Geeks listeners. Uh, Marty Ralph is a research meteorologist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. Uh, at UC San Diego and is the director of the Center for Western Weather and Water Extremes at Scripps. He earned a PhD in atmospheric sciences from the University of California, Los Angeles, better known as UCLA. And he was also a research meteorologist and branch chief in NOAA's Earth System Research Lab in Boulder uh, before he moved to Scripps. And I believe that's where I'm most familiar with you from initially. I think that's where we first had some interactions. Yeah. You, know, you have, and I, I, I know you as Dr. Atmospheric Rivers in a sense, because <laughs> when I think of atmospheric rivers, and I think when most people do, uh, they think of you and your research. So let's, let's start with the basics for our listeners, because many Weather Geeks listeners may not know at all what we are referring to when we talk about an atmospheric river. So give us the 101. So an atmospheric river is really a river of water vapor, you know, in the sky. And it's it's wider than a terrestrial river, but it's pushing water along as vapor. And uh, on average, about 500 miles wide, 1,000, 2,000 miles long. And uh, they are down in the lowest 10,000 feet of the atmosphere, you know, focused really in the lower troposphere uh, where the moisture is greatest. And we can still get strong winds ahead of the cold front. And, you know, I, I, I just did a I teach a satellite meteorology class at the University of Georgia, and I just did a unit in, uh, in that class in the last week or two on atmospheric rivers. Great. And I, I remember showing them a graphic. It was on some module, maybe comet module or some module out there. And it talked about the volume of water or water vapor. And it, it gave an analogy to the Mississippi River of some type. I can't remember the exact numbers, but uh, could you just give the, the, the listeners a sense of just, you know, how much water vapor or aspects of the water system are moving in these things? I mean, because I, I thought that was really a compelling analogy. Yeah, sure thing. And uh, this question came up uh, over the years. I started working on ARs around 2003 or four. And uh, pretty quickly, the question came up, well, how much water vapor is moving along? And uh, after a number of uh, research campaigns with research aircraft, we measured how much water is being pushed along using drop sounds from the aircraft. And I think we had uh, 
it was something like 17 cases by the time I did this uh, paper a couple of years ago. And we calculated the total transport. Like if you sliced across an AR as if it were like a terrestrial river and you've calculated the flux of water vapor, the amount average of an average AR was 25 Mississippi rivers or 2.6 Amazons. Wow. And that's like the amount of water the Mississippi's dumping into the Gulf of Mexico at a moment. It's a rate. It's a flow. And, and that's that's just that's that's jaw dropping. I, I literally was wow when I when I saw such statistics myself. And but it makes sense though in terms of when you think about you know I I've seen you know meteorological discussions that suggest that thirty to forty percent of the western coast you know precipitation um, is related to you know water vapor coming from these atmospheric rivers. First of all, is that correct? Uh, and if so. Um, how do they, you know, influence precipitation there along the West Coast? I know it's not just the water vapor itself. It's an interplay with the mountains and orography in that region. It's also where the core of the atmospheric river sets up with the coastline. So just talk to us about the sort of rainfall generator that these things are. Sure thing. So uh, it turns out that um, on on average, in the Northwest U.S., a quarter to a third of annual precipitation comes in atmospheric river storms. In parts of California, it's over 50%. The Sierra Nevada, 40% of its snowpack. And there's just a very recent paper, even the, the uh, Colorado Rockies, a third, almost a third of the annual snowfall is from ARs that penetrate inland. So they're a huge player in Western water supply. Uh, and in terms of variation from year to year, uh, they are the driver for whether we have a wet year or dry year. And like for California, where the study I'm most familiar with is uh, Northern California has a region in the Sierras and Shastas that drains into the Central Valley. That's sort of seen as the water fountain for the state. And that area uh, gets just a, a massive amount of its precipitation from ARs, you know, 40 to 50%. And if you take the last 100 years or whatever of annual precipitation in that big basin and calculate how it varies from year to year, it's hugely different, right? We have flood years and we have drought years. It's one of the most variable climates in the country. And if you take the 5% wettest days each year out and put them in a different bucket to track and look at the other days, those days hardly vary from year to year. It's those 5% wettest days that vary dramatically. And those are the ARs. So 85% of the variance in interannual precipitation variability is due to those 5% wet days. Essentially, ARs make or break the water supply for this important part of the West. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I'm sure we have listeners that live in that part of the country that may not realize what you just said. Now, the other thing, you know, we had some fairly significant AR events here in the last few months here in 2021. And uh, I, I know that there are some people that perhaps are just hearing this term for the first time, or perhaps have yeah. heard of it recently. Um, but it's, is it is it in it kind of like the polar vortex uh, in that it's been around, but maybe is getting a lot more sort of mention and discussion in the more popular media. So just how how far back does the term, maybe from your understanding at least, does the term atmospheric river date? So the term dates to the early 1990s. 
And there were a series of three or four papers uh, culminating by one by Zhu and Newell in 1998, Monthly Weather Review, which is what lit the fire under me to say, oh my gosh, I've just flown a research aircraft experiment and uh, I saw this paper a couple of years later and it's what we were studying. And I realized, you know, the topics we were on, how important these types of storms were and uh, decided to, you know, really pour the coals to it. The precursors of the atmospheric river uh, concept came in the form of work largely from uh, Britain in the 70s and 80s that uh, highlighted the low-level jet ahead of the cold front and also the orographic precipitation in southwestern England, where they saw this huge amount of rain could come from a strong low-level jet. That work really set the stage for the atmospheric river topic to blossom in the early 90s. And I came along around 1998 and did this field campaign with aircraft. And at the same time, a satellite system called SSMI was launched, and it was a set of polar orbiting satellites, and they're able to measure water vapor over the oceans. And we saw these long, narrow ribbons, and, uh, and we flew through them and could see they were actually transporting huge amounts of water vapor. So Zhu and Newell was in 1998. My field campaign, CalJet, was in 1998. And the satellite data came online in the late 90s. All those three things really gave us as uh, scientists a chance to see and understand you know, these, this phenomena in a new way. And over time, uh, it's been growing an in interest in the scientific community and in the media. And I, I will just say that your work inspired us at the University of Georgia. I remember one year we were teaching a graduate seminar and one of the projects looked at sort of we had posed the research question, do we get these in the southeast? And oh, yeah. I suspect you might have been a reviewer, or at least know somebody it was. But we ended up publishing a paper because there was a, a really bad flooding event in Nashville, uh, I think around yep. 2011 or so. And we we sort of thought that there was an atmospheric river. And so you know, even here in the southeast, probably not as big of a player as out west. But we were just curious about whether they sort of we see these types of, you know, phenomena in this region. So, you know, your work inspired that paper that we ultimately published. It's mostly a group of our graduate students. I was one of the authors, but it was mainly the work of our graduate students. But a question that, you know, I think even came up in that discussion then uh, and, and, and I know, you know, you know, colleagues have often wondered about this. Why? What do we understand? This this is a geek out. We call this on the, the podcast. We're going to geek out here. Okay. Do we understand why why they organize in this way? The rivers. Yeah, why absolutely. Do we get these? Yeah. They're a really fundamental part of how the atmosphere works. Um, the the uh, the main driver is the pole to equator temperature gradient. So that gives uh, that temperature gradient is a form of potential energy. And there's an instability in the atmosphere called baroclinic instability, that when you have that temperature gradient under the right circumstances, you can develop a little uh, swirl or an eddy, we call them, and that can grow and self-grow and, and, and multiply in terms of its size and strength uh, because it's transferring that potential energy of the temperature gradient into kinetic energy of wind. As it's doing that, these cyclones, as we know them, uh, when they get super big or strong, they can be called bombs, for example. I'm sure folks are familiar with that term. But uh, in the process of spinning up, they're basically gathering up warm air from the more equatorial or lower latitude regions and pushing it poleward, and cold air from the pole and or polar regions and pushing it, you know, equatorward. 
they're essentially trying to mix up the temperature gradient to reduce the temperature contrast between the pole and the equator. And they're always doing that. There's several of them usually at any one time around the northern hemisphere, same for the southern. And their job is basically to try to keep the atmosphere mixed up horizontally. And along the way, what it does is it one of these cyclones forms up a, a ribbon of warm air moving forward. And that formation converges water vapor with it and transports it into in a narrow ribbon that we now understand as an atmospheric river. Really interesting connections here between the tropics uh, include something called a tropical moisture export, where some of that moisture at the sort of uh, equatorial end of an AR uh, or lower latitude end of an AR can be fed by a tropical moisture, an export of moisture from the tropics. And then as the AR is flowing along, it's right ahead of the cold front and over the cold front. If you know, most people I'm sure are familiar with the cold front and where that cold front uh, intersects the warm front, that there's a low level jet right along the, uh, the cold front, parallel to the cold front, essentially. And when it reaches the warm front, it ascends because it's basically like the warm front is somewhat like a mountain. And, and, and there's other things going on as well. But the, the basic idea is that warm, moist air that's in the AR ascends over the warm front. And when it does that, it condenses and releases massive amounts of latent heat. So much so, in fact, that that latent heat can help intensify the cyclone itself. Remember I mentioned the pole to equator temperature gradient is a form of potential energy? The water vapor in the air is another form of potential energy. And once you get that condensing, that releases that latent heat in the form of sensible heat in the air. And that is another form of energy that cyclogenesis taps into. Yeah. And many of our weather geeks listeners may be familiar with this latent heat energy from a different perspective, because it's also what's powering hurricanes, if you will, cyclones. That's how we get that energy from the ocean, uh, from the evaporated water. And then it condenses in these big engines, these hot towers that are these cumulonimbus clouds in the eye wall and then the rain bands. And so that concept of energy uh, is manifested again. This hidden energy manifests itself as sensible energy that drives these systems. Take a break, and then I've got a question about the scale you've been working on. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Marty Ralph, who from Scripps. Uh, he's he. I mean, I, he probably would push back on me because he's I know know his character and personality, but he's the scientist on atmospheric rivers. If you want to know something about atmospheric rivers, if you want to go to the literature, he's the person to go to. And so that's why that's why we have him on Weather Geeks, because I know this is something that many of you are fascinated with and something that you're hearing more about. So, uh, you know, people often ask this question because people are familiar with the Saffir Simpson scale. Uh, they are familiar with the Fujita scale for tornadoes. Uh, heck, even uh, a group of, of, of one of my former graduate students, Amanda Schroeder, and a group of students have been trying to develop a flash flood scale. Uh, scales are meaningful for people, and they help with communication and risk assessment and warning. 
I hear through the grapevine that you are working on a scale for atmospheric rivers. Tell us all about it. Great. Thanks, Marshall. And I appreciate the idea. I, I do lead a fair bit of AR work, but there's a pretty substantial community now working on the topic, and it's a remarkably vibrant and diverse group of people from all over the world. Absolutely. So uh, I appreciate the recognition, though. So our scale is essentially uh, trying to help communicate whether we've got an atmospheric river you know, coming or that just happened that is more likely to be beneficial you know, or hazardous. And it can be both in some cases. So the, the backstory here is that as we developed the atmospheric river science, it became clear that ARs were the driver of floods on the West Coast. And we eventually showed, I had a paper in 2006 that showed all the floods on the Russian River where we happened to be doing a study for several years had been with AR storms. And that sort of broke the ice, so to speak. And now we know, for example, a nice paper by Coringham et al. in Science Advances 2019 looked at 40 years of FEMA flood uh, flood damage data and found in the Western U.S. and found that 84% of all the flood damage claims in 40 years were from AR storms in the Western U.S. And on the West Coastal states, it's 90 to 99%. So they really are, you know, the flood makers. And our early scientific work really highlighted that aspect of it, because of course we need to work on that type of problem. But then as, you know, the stories would get out and the uh, broadcast media or newspapers would uh, would carry a story about, you know, atmospheric river, you know, hit the coast or coming our way, that sort of thing, that it became sort of seen as a primarily hazardous thing. And then some of the storms would come in and they weren't too hazardous, but they were still qualified as atmospheric rivers because they're carrying super amounts of water vapor. But they aren't all the same. So the National Weather Service uh, folks we work with uh, asked for some help with that. And I'd been thinking about it for a while and decided to go ahead and, and generate a scale. I had it on my whiteboard, like 10 parameters of what makes an AR significant, you know, hazardous versus beneficial. And there was an event and that's just untenable. So there was a moment, I don't know if you're interested in a little story here, uh, Marshall. So uh, absolutely, please do. I'm at uh, AGU the American Geophysical Union meeting in uh, San Francisco about five years ago. And I'm uh, at breakfast at the Sears Cafe across from the St. Francis, Sir Francis Drake Hotel. And uh, there's the broadcast of the five-day outlook on the TV in the, in the cafe. And it's Monday and I'm going, you know, we've got an AR session on Thursday, which is as the AR topic is growing is sort of a significant moment, right? A AGU session specialized on it and all. We had a lot of good attendance and, and all that. And I happened to know that there was a big AR bearing down on San Francisco, pretty likely to hit on Thursday. High impact event. And I'm looking at the five-day outlook, and it's got, you know, your high and low temperatures in San Francisco are sort of, you know, steady, even with changes in weather. But the weather went from a nice sunny symbol on Monday to a sort of friendly-looking cloud on Tuesdays to a sort of nice cloud with a little bit of rain on Wednesday to a dark, scary cloud on Thursday with a lot of rain. I just found that wholly inadequate to com convey that Thursday what was coming. I mean, there was a big storm on its way, and it was an AR, and it was going to create problems, most likely. And I just decided at that moment that I need to clear off my whiteboard. The 10-parameter thing isn't going to work and boil it down to something simple and meaningful and science-based. 
So we boiled it down to two parameters, which, by the way, is one more than the hurricane parameter. And one which is more. mostly wind, right? Yeah. And it's because we knew that it's this combination of how strong the AR is and how long it lasts. And we decided to make it based on a gridded data. So at a given location, you can ask the question, when does the AR start, the one that's coming or whatever, and when does it end? That gives our duration. And while it's overhead, what is its max value? How many Mississippis kind of number? It's not exactly that, but it's related. Those two parameters determine what the ranking is. So you can have one that has a, a certain intensity, we call it, that maximum amount of water vapor flow uh, that is, say, you know, 800 units. And if it lasts 24 to 48 hours overhead, that becomes an AR3. But if it lasts, if it stalls and lasts more than 48 hours, we promote it by one and it becomes an AR4. If it moves through quickly and lasts less than 24 hours, we demote it by one and it becomes an AR2. And that gives us that ability to incorporate the stalling, which is really vital to determining the impact of an AR. You know, it's really interesting to hear you, you know, think about and talk about this because, you know, for a while I've, you know, in my own research world, I've been thinking about a better way to classify the threat from hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges has always been, we know they're big rainfall producers, but sometimes they slow down and become massive rainfall fall, fall producers, like we saw with Harvey, for example. But then in other cases, they move through quickly and the rain's not that bad. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there's some things perhaps that can be learned from, from your AR scale and thinking about that problem too. I know Jen Carfagno often talks about sort of atmospheric rivers, you know, they can often produce rain apocalypse. I've, I've seen that term before. Mm -hmm. And so it really is, from what you're saying, a combination of, you know, the duration of the actual event as well as sort of its overall intensity, because that's actually a question I was going to sort of ask you. Um, you know, and speaking sure. of hurricanes, yeah, have hurricane sort of observations and research or even some of the tools we use, has that helped in atmospheric rivers research? Well, yes, it has. And uh, um, before we go to that, I want to touch on the thing you just mentioned, though, about um, the hurricane problem in general, yes, the yes. stalling and all. I wanted to mention there's a paper out from a year or two ago now. I think it's in Journal of Hydrometeorology, uh, Lemjiri et al. And we actually were able to find that about a quarter of the, the big three-day rainfall totals in the southeast U.S. are AR-related. Really? And another quarter, and you mentioned your study earlier, and I appreciate that 2010 storm in Nashville was very damaging, tragic, and uh, we learned a lot. Um, but also that uh, about half of the hurricanes show up with something that qualifies as an AR. So there's this blending of the two, and they're they're related. There's also a phenomenon called a predecessor rain event. PRE, sure. Pre, and I think these three things, and then you add in the tropical moisture export concept, they're all sort of working together, and they're distinct in their own ways. But when they come together, in my experience, Marshall, a lot of our extreme events in weather are when multiple phenomena sort of line up to combine effort or force to create a big impact event. So uh, anyhow, very interesting recent developments here. I think it's a rich topic, uh, and uh, I'm hopeful you know, there'll be more progress on that. When it comes to learning uh, from the hurricane work uh, about uh, you know, the AR thing, first and foremost is the category you know, the scale for for hurricanes has been super effective. It's got its limitations now, and there's some 
I think we're being considered to update it. But uh, it really has, was compelling early in my career to see how effective it was as a situational awareness tool for the public and for decision makers outside meteorology. So that was a number one thing. Number two is how uh, if we as a nation or as a scientific community pour the coals to uh, addressing a, a practical problem like the landfall position error of hurricanes and we get a, enough resources, enough people involved, we use models and aircraft and satellites and all of that, uh, we can actually move the needle and improve those forecasts. It's one of the breakthroughs that I haven't done it myself, but I've seen and managed some programs that support it. Uh, you know, hurricane landfall position error has reduced greatly, I think, because we poured the coals to it scientifically. So there's a programmatic lesson there that I've applied in the AR problem. Let's get enough resources and people involved and focus our attention on, well, the landfall position of ARs. And it's very much an analogous thing. And the duration is part of it and the intensity and the orientation. And then the last bit I'll mention, Marshall, is the uh, the use of uh, reconnaissance aircraft, weather reconnaissance aircraft that NOAA has and the Air Force has. I saw how valuable those were there. I'm an aircraft scientist going way back anyways, and uh, decided to request some aircraft in the winter when they're largely not as heavily utilized, uh, but they exist in the U.S.'s, you know, uh, garage of, uh, or, or, you know, uh, tarmac of aircraft facilities to use primarily for hurricanes, let's use them in the winter. And that has, has morphed into and become an operational program each winter called Atmospheric River Reconnaissance. And uh, I work with Vijay Talapragada, I'm the PI, and Vijay's the co-PI, and he leads the GFS model in NOAA. And we have teamed up for the last five or six years to build this program with a lot of involvement from ECMWF and the Navy and CAR and other universities. Uh, so it's been a lot of lessons from the hurricane thing, Marshall. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And we're back on Weather Geeks. Uh, this is Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And wow, this is this is an ultimate geek out. I mean, this is this is an this is an A plus uh, geek <laughs> out here today because I mean we're just covering such fascinating ground, and I I, I know the listeners of Weather Geeks are geeking out with me because I'm geeking out. I mean, I you know I've got my Weather Geeks T-shirt on today because <laughs> I, I knew this is going to be a geek out here. Yeah, you know I know some listeners may be familiar with the term Pineapple Express. Is that a specific type of atmospheric river? Or is that just sort of a sort of a regional colloquial name for atmospheric rivers before it became sort of known to be atmospheric rivers. As people say now, a pineapple express is one flavor of atmospheric river. And That's it happens to be one that helped lay the groundwork for learning more about atmospheric rivers. You know, at pineapple expresses on the West Coast were pineapple because they seemed to come off, of, you know, across Hawaii roughly. And uh, when they were oriented that way and made it all the way to the coast of the Western U.S., they often were associated with big, you know, storms or, you know, heavy rain and, and sometimes flooding. So uh, we now know, we've expanded our knowledge substantially, and we know that 
these type of storms are now atmospheric rivers and they exist all over the mid-latitudes, uh, mostly over the oceans are most common because that's where the water vapor is, is most available. So uh, we get ARs in the Atlantic and in the you know, Western Pacific and the Eastern Pacific and the S Southern Hemisphere. They're vital to Chile and all that. So uh, there's even a term I've heard for uh, Western European uh, ARs are sometimes called rum runner because of their source in uh, the, the Caribbean. Uh, so uh, there's also, I, I want to correct a little sidebar on the source thing. There's long been a, a, a perception that because these satellite images show uh, large water vapor content going all the way from the tropics to the coast, that the water vapor is leaving the tropics and making it all the way to the coast. There are a number of scientific studies now that show that's not really what's happening. Maybe 10% of that water vapor from the tropics makes it to the coast. Most of it rains out along the way. And then is um, uh, there, there's new water vapor that enters into the AR from evaporation off the ocean and convergence. So it looks like, you know, the, the AR is, is taking water vapor all the way from the tropics to the West Coast. But in reality, it's more like a freeway. And this analogy is from Jay Cordera up in New Hampshire. It's more like a freeway where you've got on-ramps and off-ramps. The freeway, you know, looks like it's one thing, but the parcels of air or the cars on the freeway are, uh, you know, going on and off the off the freeway. Now, bad and out part of the analogy is ARs are not fixed in location; they move with the storm. So, anyhow, yes, that's that's really a great analogy. And it, you, when you talk about sort of these on and off ramps of moisture, it makes me wonder: is is sea surface temperature does it do they, does it play a role in the intensity Very. or integrity of these uh, rivers? Very important. Sea surface temperature is key. And uh, there was a study back in uh, around 05 or so uh, by a person that uh, uh, showed about 25% additional convective available potential energy or CAPE when uh, because of the big El Nino in 98, that year we were making measurements, the paper came out in 2005. And uh, there was an extra burst of heat going into the lower atmosphere into what we now know as the AR right before it hit the coast of Santa Barbara and really increased the precipitation rates and the flooding. And of course, the larger pattern of sea surface temperatures over the Pacific helps set the storm track and that helps set you know, where ARs are going to occur and, and, and the like. How, how are, I mean, we, we, I know our listeners are familiar with the GFS and the European model and so forth. Uh, how are how are our models models handling uh, atmospheric rivers when where are the uncertainties? Yeah. Great question. Uh, the models represent ARs in them, and uh, they do a fair job. They don't get them always right, and sometimes the ARs are too wide or too strong or too weak or not enough water vapor or too much wind. But the models clearly have atmospheric rivers in them, and. We look at the GFS model and the ECMWF model every day in my center. We have uh, displays side by side. Uh, you can see they're really quite interesting. We even do a difference field between the ECMWF and the GFS model so you can see which one's coming to shore faster or stronger. It's, it's quite intuitive and interesting. Uh, and that's on our website. You know, I don't know if you want to share CW3E.UCSD.edu. You know, but there's some very cool uh, visuals there. So the GFS and ECMWF, we tend to see some hint of the ARs coming typically five days, three to five days out. 
It's rare that we don't see one coming. What we don't always get right is where it's going to hit short. And if we go out to seven to 10 days, we see some hints sometimes that one might be forming up to hit. 10 to 12 days, we can see ARs out there in the model, but we don't trust it because, you know, the weather's likely to be very different when it comes in. But there are some situations, very few, but they're very real, where we actually can look back at a storm that we saw hit today, let's say, and we look back yesterday at the forecast for today, and the, the AR was in the forecast, and back and back further in time. The <coughs> excuse me. There are a few days or a few storms where we see precursor signals in the forecast models 10 and 12 days out. This is one of the science questions is what sets those apart? Is there something we could be looking at that says, hey, this is the large scale weather pattern. It's going to provide us more predictive confidence in a forecasted AR landfall 10 days out than a different large scale situation. I think it's a really potent. Uh, scientific direction, and and we have a lot of uh, optimism around that. Uh, yeah, but, absolutely. Yeah, feel yeah. Feel free to grab you some water if you need to, and I'll set yeah, up the next you. question because I, I had one more on the model. Oh, that oh I'm sorry. No, go ahead and go ahead. And I, I see you. Yeah, for those little little inside weather geeks ball game here. Though this is an audio podcast, we actually do do the interviews where I can actually see the person I'm talking to for verbal cues, and so um, I, I wanted to let Dr. Ralph get some water there. So yeah, continue on with the model. It's great to see you, by the way, Marshall. Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Good to see you as well. We've actually been working together on something else. So it's actually good to just be able to yeah. talk one on one here. So uh, one of the other things that we learned from the hurricane problem and the science and the forecasting efforts around it is to develop a tailored regional weather model that focuses on hurricanes and predicts hurricanes best is an important approach to improving weather prediction. Because if you do a model that is supposed to get hurricanes right and thunderstorms over the Great Plains and ARs in the Pacific and Arctic storms and nor'easters, it's a different model than one that is focused on hurricanes. And there's something called HWARF, which is the hurricane version of the WARF model. And it's been used for many, many years now and developed through the Hurricane Forecast Improvement Program. We have in starting this center at Scripps several years ago when I came here, Decide, I decided to build a model for ARs analogous to the H-Wharf. We call it West Wharf. And that has now been designed and we run it every winter in real time on a supercomputer. And it produces the best AR forecast because we've tailored it to predict ARs. We don't worry about that model predicting hurricanes. So we can really laser focus, you know, on the AR problem. So the modeling question was really important, Marshall. I just wanted to get that point in because the regional model is super important in meteorology. This is sort of a wave of the future. So I, I have two questions about climate, but at different scales. The first question is, and I guess I might know the answer to this, given what you just said about SSTs. But the first question is, is there any sort of known published role between the ENSO cycle and uh, at least the Western or the Pacific River events. And then the second question is, uh, do we have any understanding at this point of the broader climate change, global warming impacts on the atmospheric rivers? Yeah, great questions. Uh, first is that uh, um, the ENSO uh, cycle 
modulates the storm track in the Pacific and across the Northern Hemisphere, really. But what we've been puzzled by is the connection to ARs has not been so clear. And what I've come to think now, and this is a little bit, you know, cart before the horse, it's uh, looking under the hood in the research, is that we can view ARs as more like the thing that can disrupt the pattern and precipitation that we might otherwise expect out of ENSO. Because a single AR can be so important to water supply and annual precipitation that if we're in a position where the ENSO pattern says it's going to be dry in a certain spot and you happen to get one or two ARs you know, that year that are super strong, that will make it less of a dry year and it will disrupt the correlation that is, uh, has been used as a basis for ENSO. So we're sort of shifting our thinking a little bit. I'm, I should say I'm shifting my thinking on how ARs relate to ENSO. I think they're, they're more the disruptor of the relationship in, in the West Coast, at least. Uh, and then, uh, or amplifier in some cases, like it's happening in the Pacific Northwest this winter. In terms of the climate trends, uh, what we see is the climate models are very strongly indicating that we're going to see stronger ARs in the future in some cases, because fundamentally there's more, a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapor. Water vapor is the fuel of ARs. So for the same amount of wind, you're going to get more Mississippis. You're going to get more water vapor flux. And that's going to translate into more rain when the air goes up in the, in the, in the warm conveyor belt above the warm front or, you know, because of pushing up over the mountains. So uh, that's a very important finding. And then another is that uh, we're likely to see longer dry spells between storms in at least the Mediterranean climates of the world, including the you know, west parts of the West Coast. And what that means is we're basically expecting to go into a regime where we have bigger, a few big wet storms and longer dry spells between them. And we might end up with the same net total of rainfall for the year but we get more of it in a few big bursts and longer dry spells in between. And that represents a big challenge for water management. And, and speaking of this water management issue, I mean, I know we've had, even in the last couple of years, we've had drought uh, in the West and, you know, it's crystallizing for me uh, more and more. I mean, I had a student looking at precipitation variability in the indigenous and uh, reservation regions of uh, the, the four corners region of the Southwest. And she was, you know, she was doing things from a satellite trim GPM perspective on water availability and water budgets and things, but it's increasingly evident to me that out West, when we're thinking about drought and water issues, I mean, you, you've got to have atmospheric rivers in the equation. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. They make or break the water year in key watersheds. And as I mentioned earlier, a recent paper by Lettenmauer et al. Uh, showed 30% of the Colorado you know, Rockies snowpack is from ARs and 40% of the Sierra Nevada from Guanadal a few years back. And, uh, you know, 50% of, you know, coastal precipitation in Northern California. So you, you change the nature of the ARs and you're going to change the water outlook for the region. Do, do, but are the water managers in these regions, I mean, we know this scientifically and we understand the impacts and know the percentages. I, the question I guess I have now, are there active effort sort of, I guess, decision support tools, decisions management tools that are incorporating this AR type science into decision making? Short answer is yes. And uh, 
one of the uh, situations to be aware of is that many of the reservoirs, when they were, were, you know, most were built decades and decades ago. And at the time they were built, the forecast skill was very poor. So the rules that govern operation of flood control reservoirs often almost entirely required that the the data that was used to decide whether to release or keep water was how much water was on the ground, in the river, or in the reservoir, not in not in the prediction of precipitation, because those predictions, you know, 50, 60 years ago were lousy. They've gotten better, but still very tough. Turns out ARs are more predictable in terms of making precipitation than most other storm types. And that's given us a leg up in the West. And uh, when I started the center out here, one of the key programs I got rolling was something called Forecast Informed Reservoir Operations, F-I-R-O or FIRO in short. And FIRO was a, a paper study to try to work with the Army Corps of Engineers and local water agencies to see if after a big storm that has sort of filled some of the empty space that was kept empty for flood control, normally they would have to release that water right after the storm in case there's another storm coming. That's how the rules were written and they were safe and they worked really pretty well. But there was a big drought started in 2012 right after a series of big ARs had hit this one watershed. I mentioned the Russian River earlier. And that water was released, that extra water, because there could be another storm coming, they thought. And then it started a 13-month driest period on record there and ended up in a terrible situation for water supply. And we came along and said, well, that may be if you could keep that water an extra day and watch the forecast, you know, that extra water from the previous storm that normally you would get rid of in order to make more space for the next possible flood. If you look out a few days ahead and you don't see an AR coming, maybe hold on to that water for a day and then look at the next forecast and the next forecast. And we proved on paper that over the course of, you know, 50 years or whatever we looked at, on average, it would have been a big benefit to water supply if that had been done and no impact on flood control. So it was so good a result that, in fact, we were asked as a, as a project to request a formal change in operations of the reservoir temporarily to test the idea. And fast forward a couple of years and we get a drought year right after, and there was a big AR in the middle of it. And some of that water was kept. It was 20% more water was left in that reservoir going into the dry summer because of this FIRO effort than had been possible before. That's enough water for tens of thousands of households for a year. And it really made a dent in the drought impact. And now we're looking at it in other reservoirs across the West and contemplating it elsewhere. So, yeah, FIRO is a potent application of AR forecast skill and, uh, and the science supporting that. Wow, really, really amazing example of research to operations or research to applications, I should say, and that's so important. La- last question. Uh, it's been, I, I, I don't know if you can tell, but I don't want this to end because I love this. Is I'm geeking out. I, I I'm loving talking with you, Mark. Yeah, I really appreciate this this conversation, and also shout out to Jen Carfagna. I know that sort of you know has talked to you on the air on the Weather Channel, but also really was engaged in in helping prepare some of this discussion. Um, just last question, what, what sort of circling back to your classification scheme, what what kind of feedback are you getting on it and sort of what's next for you generally in your research? Yeah, very interesting uh, evolution now. The scale, we published it in 2019 uh, as a lead author and there were seven co-authors from including a couple from Weather Service. And uh, it's now 
something that's being used in the broadcast meteorology community and in the print community. We see it now on uh, in Washington Post and CNN and and Fox News and or Fox Weather and Weather Channel, and it's really catching on as something that is genuinely helping people distinguish the incoming storm or the recent storm as being, you know, a weak AR or a strong AR, and that helps determine whether they're beneficial or hazardous. And uh, we're also very aware some of the next things coming is that, like in the October, we had an AR-5 hit, you know, it goes one to five. We had an AR-5 hit the Bay Area, and it was uh, highly impactful, largely beneficial because it hit a landscape that was super dry. Right, it had been drought for two years. There'd been a bit of rain the previous winter, but still super dry. So the soils can soak up a lot of water in the first storm. So we didn't get the big rivers didn't start flooding. The local rivers and the urban areas had some serious flooding, uh, but mostly that storm recharged the soil across a big part of Northern California. So when we start getting more storms, there'll be more runoff into the reservoirs. So being able to anticipate, you know, is it even if it's an AR-5, what the type of impacts are going to be is important. Another is something we call AR families, uh, Marshall. It's when you get a sequence of ARs that come sort of in a cluster, and there might not be much of a break between them. And that's what happened in the Northwest and British Columbia and Northern Washington you know, last week was uh, a pair of back-to-back AR-4s. The second one ended up being, you know, on the verge of AR-5 depending on how you, what data you use to count it. And then that one had a kicker at the end where the vapor transport ramped way up right after like several days with a lot of rain. And that kicker was due to something called a mesoscale frontal wave that formed up offshore and was not well predicted. And it ended up holding the AR in place and intensifying it over Southern British Columbia and the very Northern part of Washington State. I happened to be in Seattle at the time, or right after, and it had been predicted originally to hit Seattle pretty hard, but you know it ended up being more up in Vancouver. So that's the kind of thing we're working on right now, and the scale is helping us convey, uh, you know, information from a situational awareness standpoint. And we have a web page that has a nice tool on it. I've shared that with the Weather Channel uh, folks the other day. And uh, it's uh, it's very intuitive. It's a bit like the cone of uncertainty thing for hurricanes, but it's. Could you, could you give us that? Could you, Marty, would you give us that website one more time here on the podcast? Sure. It's dw3e.ucsd.edu. Okay. And, and and also for those that are more social media savvy, or do you have a Twitter or anything, or is it just the website? Yeah, but I don't know what it's called. No, well, you can probably just Google Atmospheric Rivers and Marty Ralph and Scripps, and I bet you'll find it. That's pretty. There is a Twitter account. Apparently, it's pretty popular, but I'm a dinosaur in that regard. Yeah, I think uh, we're going to get you on there. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners can find it very easily. In fact, if you do find it as you're listening to this, uh, shout it out, tweet it out and tag me at Dr. Shepard 2013 so we can make sure we can forward it out there because I don't think that I'm following it either. But we've got to end it here. But before we do, it's time for our Geek of the Week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, great geologist or a weather weenie. 
at the end of every podcast. This episode's Geek of the Week is Blake Nafto. Blake is an artist, videographer, and filmmaker. Blake was nominated because he is the quintessential weather geek and storm chaser. He pours over weather maps and models daily and chases storms frequently, especially around his native lower Michigan. He has chased storms since 1999 when his first video of a rain-wrapped tornado garnered him a mention on the local news broadcast. Since then, he's cultivated a career and weather-related media, producing in crowd, a, a crowdfunded documentary about the history of storm chasing. Wow, that's awesome, Blake. Hey, thank you for listening and keep listening. If you know someone else that is a deserving candidate for our Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Um, Marty or Dr. Ralph, as we should, uh, Dr. Um, Marty Ralph, but I just know him as Marty because he's a colleague, but Dr. Ralph formerly. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you, Marshall. Great questions. Wonderful to connect. Uh, And as always, thank you all for continuing to listen to the Weather Geeks podcast powered by the Weather Channel. And uh, we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.